as soon as we started giving him citrulline, guess what? He doesn't like cucumber anymore. <laughs> This is Shafali, and you're listening to Peds Admin. Alice, what are we going to be talking about today? Oh, today we have genetics and metabolism, episode three out of four. Today we're going to be specifically talking about urea cycle disorders and disorders of carbohydrate metabolism with our fan favorite, <laughs> back for part three, <laughs> my popular demand, <laughs> Dr. Deborah Gear. Should we talk about the pathway? Yeah, let's move on to urea cycle. Yeah, so we talked about it. I keep talking about ammonia, and now I get to finally talk about ammonia. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, finally. Okay, so remember, in urea cycle disorders, we take ammonia, we turn it into urea. Multiple steps in the pathway. The most common step is OTC. It's X-linked. So you'll see boys have very severe forms of this. But this is an evil one. Moms and girls can be really severe and have really high ammonia levels. It's because of X um, lionization. So remember back to like genetics when you're, I don't know, in fifth grade or sixth grade, whatever it was, where you have two copies of X if you're female, but in all your cells, you turn one off and leave the other one on. But if your liver had most of them turned off and only has on the mutation form, you're not making any of the enzyme you need in your liver and you're not able to break down ammonia. In contrast, if you're the sibling who has all of the good ones turned on and all the bad ones turned off in your liver, you have no symptoms. So you can go from almost no symptoms, not even knowing you have this, to mild symptoms. So the mild symptoms we care about is like a mom who told me, I just have never liked meat. It makes it gives me a headache. I just, I always knew I felt better when I was a vegetarian. I hear that all the time from moms who never knew they had something. To uh, moms who have migraines, we'll hear about. Um, moms who just seem more tired than other people. Moms who had low glucose levels or for some reason just had a hard time waking up after having babies. All of those things, if you think about it, anything that really stresses someone can unmask a, a, a carrier, what we call a carrier, or we often call them affected carriers of OTC. So OTC is the second step in the pathway. The first step is CPS1. So what that does, it takes ammonia and converts it to carbonyl phosphate through carbonyl phosphate synthetase. Ooh, big words. So CPS1. Yes, yes. And then ornithine transcarbamylase takes the carbonyl phosphate, connects it to ornithine to make citrulline. So if you can't do that step, you can't get from ornithine to citrulline. So if you think about it, if I think a kid has any one of those first steps, they're going to have really low citrulline levels. So that's why we can check on plasma amino acids. Citrulline is actually plasma amino acid. So we can look at citrulline levels. What we know is if we get those kids citrulline, guess what happens? It helps replenish that whole pathway. So often you'll find that we're giving kids citrulline when they have urea cycle disorders, or if they have the disorder where they build up citrulline and can't convert the citrulline to arginine, then we'll give them arginine. So they often are having these crazy meds where they have an amino acid as a medication. If you ever see someone has an amino acid yeah. as a medication, you should be like, this is a <laughs> metabolic kid. Yeah. This doesn't seem like if they have yeah. baleen, yeah. isoleucine, yeah. citrulline, and you're like, yeah, this is a weird medication. Yeah. You should yeah. think us. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. yes. yes. So the point of all of these medications is to push the pathway as much as we can. Because our goal is even if we can push it one step, maybe we get a tiny bit less ammonia. But as you guys said earlier, 
the number one thing we can do in this case is get rid of the ammonia. So either we have to do dialysis, and I think we can all agree we don't want to do dialysis 24-7 on any child, yeah. or we can give a medication that takes the ammonia, converts it to something that's water-soluble or usable. So one medication converts it to glycine. It bends to glycine to make it water-soluble. The other one um, converts... Um, so it doesn't actually take up the ammonia, but ammonia is converted to glutamine, and it takes the glutamine and gets rid of the glutamine that's excess. Because remember, glutamate yeah. gets converted to glutamine with an ammonia group, and then we can get rid of the glutamine with a medication. So it's kind of a cool, like, second product. The cool thing in all of these kids who have high ammonia levels, the body knows ammonia is bad. And it has kind of this way of taking up ammonia and sinking it. And it does that by taking um, glycine and converting it to glutamate and glutamate going to glutamine. And in both of those steps, you kind of pull in the ammonia so it's not just floating around causing brain swelling. So when we look at these kids, you'll see really high glutamine levels. They have high glutamate levels, both on their plasma amino acids and on mass spec. So MRS with their MRIs, you can see the glutamate and glutamine accumulation in their brains kind of cool that you can actually see all of these ways the body's trying to protect them from the ammonia. So on an MRS, you would see the accumulation of an abnormal amino acid in the brain because uh-huh. it's spectroscopy and you'll get, you'll get a yeah, spike. And, and you, you can expect. see the glutamate and glutamine. Yeah. So we use MRS a lot because you can see a lot of different amino acids on MRS. So a lot of our disorders, we can identify with MRS. So when these kids come in, first Second, third thing you want is an ammonia level. Go ahead and be ready before they get there. Like have someone ready to stick them in the arm. Right. And what do we need to? Yeah. yeah. What do we need to do to get to collect the ammonia level? Is that is that what you're yeah. Oh, it's evilness. Yeah. So it's good for residents to know. <laughs> getting a good ammonia level is very hard. Uh-huh. Good parents will actually not let anyone come near their child with a needle without a cup of ice. Mm, okay. The number one okay. thing you need to do is put this thing on ice. And a lot of our parents know, where's the ice? Don't stick my child until I see the cup of ice. Because they know that's the big thing. The other issue is if there is any hemolysis, you can have an elevated ammonia level that's inaccurate. So ways you can prevent hemolysis are avoiding tourniquets, having the most free-flowing sample you can have. If you're drawing off a central line, don't push and pull multiple times. Just gently pull once. Put the blood in and then like be gentle about everything that you're doing. I'm going to be blunt with you. There are some kids, you cannot get a free-flowing blah, 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 blah. I would rather have a mediocre sample and a sample in the first hour than it take five hours to have the perfect sample. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want you to like take their heel squeeze it, (laughs) do a heel stick, and then squeeze out the blood sample because then we're going to have like a 300 that's meaningless. Even if it's not perfect, if you don't know if you can get another one, get that to the lab. Call and tell me, hey, it wasn't perfect, but this is what we could get. I think it's not perfect, but at least it was on ice, and I know they're running it quickly. So getting it on ice and the sample being processed in the lab quickly are the top two things you can do. Yeah, I don't want a tourniquet. I would love it free-flowing. But to be honest, but to be honest, that that I was a resident here. I get that you can't do everything in life, but at least do the two that you can do. Get it to the lab quickly. Keep it on ice. Make sure they process it quickly. If you don't have an answer back in an hour, you need to call them and get it back. These ammonias that take four and five hours, we don't trust. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yes. Do what you can and use that central line if they have it.
All right. Other things that we encounter interactions with mm-hmm. these patients. So we've seen, you know, several extended mm-hmm. admissions while we're waiting for a curative liver transplant. Do you want to talk about a, a little bit extended, like months like at a months, time? Maybe months at a time. But we, we would love for them to be shorter. We would love more kids to get livers faster. Exactly. Make um, sure that everyone should be on the donor list. You can just check the box on check your the box, driver's license, yes. driver's license yeah. and make sure you tell your family yeah. that you checked the box. Yeah. You must tell your family. What do they have to do to to make you want to draw an ammonia level? Sneeze. So let me back up. If they're if they're sitting on the hospital floor waiting for a liver, that means they've been home two or three times and crumped quickly. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they're sitting at home waiting for a liver. They only get to sit with us if literally they came back within twenty four hours with an ammonia that was four or five times higher than when they left. Which means they're very brittle. Like they couldn't even handle the ride home because it was too stressful. Or they couldn't handle even small changes to their life because it was all too stressful. So if they're sitting in the building, they don't handle stress well. So you might, you know, notice there's a storm that comes through and the room's a little cooler. And one time we had a high ammonia level and that was the only thing we could figure out why it happened. Even the smallest stressors can push really fragile kids over. That's because... Remember, we're having to give them enough protein to grow, but not so much that they use their protein for energy, right? Because you need amino acids to grow. And if we don't give them that, we actually have brain damage. So they have to grow. So we have to give them what's actually toxic to them to keep them alive. So you're fighting dying from not growing versus dying from a toxin at the at every moment of their whole lives until we figure this out. So that balancing act is impossible. And as kids grow, as we know, they might grow more one day than the next day. So we're checking amino acids usually twice a week. We're checking ammonia levels whenever they do something silly, as you said. Mm -hmm. So what are silly things? Ammonia, by definition, makes you have an increase in GABA. GABA is a sedating neurotransmitter. So they act like you gave them a benzo. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. They're going to act sleepy. The respiratory rate is going to be altered. They're not going to want to wake up. They're going to not want to feed well. You mess with them. You're doing things that they usually like to do, and they're just not acting themselves. Mm-hmm. Some kids can be a little bit fussier mm-hmm. because the brain swelling, like, they won't soothe. Some kids, their cry will be a little more higher pitched, or they'll just seem, like, oddly fussy, mm-hmm. especially at lower ammonia levels. Very high ammonia levels, they're encephalopathic. They won't wake up. So that's why we want to hear, like, okay, they're really fussy and there's something not right. What's going on? We're going to get an ammonia level, but we're also going to ask the question, what's changed? Could they have a fever? Could they have a new virus? Could they have a new bacterial infection? Like, what pushed them over? Because if we might never find what pushed them over, but if we can identify what pushed them over, maybe we could support them more than just with fluids and calories. If you also remember, these kids that live with us get very, very round Yes. Right? Because what do we do every time they have a high ammonia level? Give them more calories, yeah, right? Yeah. To get them to stop it. Mm-hmm. So we're dumping calories in them to get them to stop it. And often they're getting so round because we have to give them so many calories to keep their body from turning their amino acids into toxins. And then when they get their livers, they get really thin and cute and run around the house. That's the, that's the other mm-hmm. side that we don't really get to see very <laughs> but, yeah. but we do. It's yeah, great. Awesome. They run around the house. That's fun. In urea cycle disorders, the body can't turn ammonia into urea, and ammonia tends to build up. When the body can't turn ammonia into urea, it will instead try and turn ammonia into glutamine, and glutamine levels will be elevated as well. 
you should see an elevated glutamine level when you draw your plasma amino acids, and you should see it on MR spectroscopy, which is the special type of MRI that looks for compound buildup in the brain. OTC is the most commonly affected enzyme in the urea cycle pathway. Usually, the body turns ammonia into carbamyl phosphate with the enzyme CPS1, and then it turns carbamyl phosphate into citrulline with the enzyme OTC. OTC is expressed on the X chromosome, which means that OTC deficiency is an X-linked disorder. Because of X lionization, mothers can be affected carriers if their liver just doesn't express that much OTC. In patients with OTC deficiency, because they can't break ammonia down into citrulline, you should see low citrulline levels, elevated ammonia levels, and then elevated glutamine levels as well, because the ammonia will turn into glutamine instead. You treat this disorder by giving citrulline, because citrulline can sort of force the urea cycle to move forward, and by giving chronic and acute ammonia scavengers. In patients with severe disease, they'll need to be treated by a curative liver transplant. If you know a patient with OTC deficiency is coming into the emergency department, have someone ready to draw free flow ammonia level and put it on ice stat. You'll then want to start D10 normal saline at one and a half maintenance to prevent any further protein breakdown from driving the ammonia level up and call the lab and genetics to let them know that you've got an ammonia level cooking. If a patient with OTC deficiency is admitted on the hospital floor for a long time, maybe just waiting for a liver transplant, you should consider drawing a free-flowing ammonia level anytime they have an acute mental status or vital sign change and calling genetics to let them know that something is up. So we talked about OTC. We talked about CPS1. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about citral anemia for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. There's another one, um, arginase deficiency. It's usually not mm-hmm. as severe, and they can come in with weird neuro findings. They can be really klutzy. They can have autism spectrum. So sometimes we'll actually check amino acids on kids, just have like autism or neurocognitive decline, and we don't quite know why. Mm -hmm. It's always a good idea to consider plasma amino acids in a kid that just isn't doing what you would expect. Mm -hmm. Because arginase deficiency can present almost any way. We recently had a kid who was diagnosed with OTC Mm -hmm. just because twice in his lifetime he was acting encephalopathic, just out of the blue. And then got better. But he has OTC. So now we know why. Okay, so to run through the common urea cycle disorders one more time CPS1 deficiency is when you don't have the first enzyme in the pathway, and OTC deficiency is when you don't have the second enzyme in the pathway. OTC deficiency is X linked. You also have more rare urea cycle disorders like citrullinemia and arginase deficiency. In arginase deficiency, these kids tend to present at an older age because it's a milder urea cycle disorder. They can come in with interesting neurologic findings like clumsiness and autism spectrum disorders, or they can just be intermittently encephalopathic. Okay, should we talk about some carbohydrates? We sure should. We should. (laughs) So Um, there's kind of two big groups of disorders. The first one is galactosemia, Uh and the second one is like the glycogen storage disorder. So Mm -hmm. galactosemia. So galactosemia is when you can't convert galactose to its products. Mm -hmm. So what happens in galactosemia is you accumulate galactose 1-phosphate. And we think that the issue actually is because you don't have enough phosphates in the cells. You become phosphate deficient because it's all bound to the galactose. The most common reason for that is because galactose 1-phosphate gets converted to glucose 1-phosphate. And if you're missing that enzyme, you can't do the next step of glucose 1-phosphate 
now now I'm going to be the total nerd going into glycolysis and getting converted to energy. So you can't get from galactose to glucose. So what do we do in this disorder? Well, actually, let me back up. Why do I care? So if you don't have enough phosphates in your body, especially in your liver, think about something that has phosphate on the end of it. ATP. ATP will, yes. yes. <laughs> so your liver can't convert ADP to ATP because there's not enough phosphates available. So you actually, galactosemia kids go into liver failure. They can present with liver failure. They can also have this interesting little thing that they do. So the high levels of galactose cause a certain bacteria to be very happy in their blood. That bacteria is called E. coli. So any kid who has a very early E. coli infection, especially E. coli sepsis or E. coli meningitis, you should consider galactosemia in the differential. The cool thing about this disorder is it's very well screened on newborn screening. So this is a time when you call the newborn screen lab and just double check if they have E. coli sepsis or E. coli meningitis, they double check that galactosemia. And if you're still like, this seems fishy, I still want to double check. We can check a galactose one phosphate level anytime. And we can send it would be significantly elevated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can always yeah constraints on checking that. There's no nothing you have to do special to get that. I would say maybe a call to us just so we can help you you follow it because you're gonna get the answer and be like, what am I supposed to do? And what do I do now? Yeah. What am I supposed to do with this answer? But that would be what we would recommend if if you have an equally really sick kid and everyone's just really frustrated. It would be something to consider. Yeah. When you think about um, galactose, so think, what has galactose? Milk. Yeah. So breast milk, yeah, they're gonna have an issue um, cow's milk. Mm-hmm. Even if mom does, doesn't does eat milk, mom makes galactose. So that's why this is one of the metabolic conditions where breastfeeding is contraindicated. Mm-hmm. To be clear with you, um, soy products or um, or formulas where it's, um, there are, are non-milk based formulas. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't always have to be soy. There's a couple different ones, mm-hmm. but we just switch into a soy based formula usually early okay. and have a low galactose diet for life. And they usually do okay. There can be some fertility issues in adulthood for galactosemia and we follow them for life because it's a, it's a little bit of a limited diet okay. and we watch their bone health really carefully. Yeah. So I think we don't do a lot of vitamin D, right? Yeah, true. So we do watch their bone health a lot and watch their fertility. So let's go out to see me. Newborn screen. Yeah, yeah for the win. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> in galactosemia, you can't break down galactose 1-phosphate. Because you can't break it down, you'll have an intracellular accumulation of galactose 1-phosphate and an intracellular deficiency of available phosphate to make ATP. This is dangerous for cells, especially cells in the liver, and these patients are at risk for presenting an acute liver failure. The accumulation of galactose 1-phosphate also puts you at risk for E. coli, sepsis, or meningitis, and so you should think about galactosemia in any baby that presents with E. coli sepsis. You can diagnose galactosemia by checking your newborn screen results or by drawing a galactose 1-phosphate level, and obviously by calling genetics. You treat galactosemia with a soy-based formula and a low-galactose diet for life. Genetics will follow these kids closely for both adherence to the diet and for their bone health. Should we talk about some ladies and stories? We should. Yeah. Do you know why? Why? Because they're not on the newborn screen. Exactly. There's no way to screen for these. So yeah. you have to find them yourself. Yeah. Congratulations. 
So what happens in glycogen? Our bodies store glycogen in our liver and in our muscle, mostly in the liver, and convert it to glucose in the first kind of phase of being hungry. That gets that conversion happens before you go into fat stores. So if you don't have the ability to convert glycogen to energy, you have early hypoglycemic events. So if you think about a newborn, usually they're eating every two or three hours. So they really never go into glycogen stores, which is good, right? They, they are not supposed to. The way we unmask the severe glycogen storage disorders is when they sleep through the night that first time. This is the, I, I often hear from the families, we can't believe we let her cry it out because then she didn't wake up the next morning. And the level of guilt that goes along with glycogen storage diseases is like horrendous. But don't worry, glycogen storage diseases are ultra rare. These are also the disorders, if you remember back, how do we treat it? Well, we kind of create glycogen for them. And we do it by giving them cornstarch. Because cornstarch is like glycogen. Mm -hmm. It just gets broken down in the intestine. So there's like a little glucose infusion all night long. There's now a long-acting cornstarch. It's called glycosate. It's actually a prescription medication where this, the strands of, of the cornstarch are just very long strands. So it takes longer for them to get broken down. So cornstarch, you can usually get about three hours mm -hmm. between feeds. With glycosate, you can get anywhere from five to eight, depending on the child. So if you think about it, before glycosate, an entire life, someone was getting up every three hours to eat. There was no sleeping overnight. So with glycosate, it's really revolutionized the world for a lot of people by allowing them to sleep for more than three hours at a time. Kind of an exciting thing. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about the severe kids, mm -hmm. they're the glycogen surgeons type 1. Mm -hmm. So 1A is the most common. 1B is less common, but they also have neutropenia. Glycogen storage disease type 2 actually is a little bit weird mm -hmm. because GSD2, we don't think of as a GSD. It's because you guys know what its other name is. This is like, can you read my mind? Oh, Pompeii. <laughs> so Pompeii, Pompeii we need to think about like a lysosomal storage disease because it's actually because of a glycogen abnormality in the lysosome. So they act like lysosomal storage disorders. And the big thing you need to remember about Pompeii, it affects the Pompeii. The pump and Pompeii go together. So these kids have very early cardiomyopathy and heart failure. Like... We're talking even prenatally sometimes. Oh, you can see heart dysfunction. Okay. Enzyme replacement therapy is life-saving for these kids. So you're not allowed to miss a Pompe kid. Is that fair? Yeah. About a third of the states in the U.S. are starting to screen for Pompe on newborn screen. Yeah. So that is the one glycogen storage disorder that we're screening for because we know enzyme replacement therapy is life-saving. So that's how it got put onto the list. Do you happen to know if that's happening in D.C.? So Pompeii is screened for in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Amazing. <laughs> We're doing it right here in the D.C. area. Yes, so emergencies. Yes. If you have any glycogen storage disease, let's think. Really, our issue is glucose, right? Mm -hmm. Like getting glucose. You know how I was telling you that glucose infusion rate of 7.5? Uh -huh. It's actually 5 to 10 is the range. And this was all done on GSD-1 kids. Everything we know about what glucose infusion rate we need is from them. We know that if you are a baby, you need a GIR of about 10. And if you're an adult, you need a GIR of about 5 to survive with no ability to break down glycogen or do gluconeogenesis. So that's where all of these amounts of glucose infusion rate came from. So guess what I do if they have to be NPO or if they're sick? D10. <laughs> Normal saline at one and a half times maintenance. I know, it's so repetitive. But we should get a gong. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but that's where this comes from. It's actually from the GSD-1 literature is where we learned all of this. And now we just extrapolate it to everyone else because there's no other literature. Yeah. So vigilant about fevers yes. is more about metabolic demand. Okay. Even more vigilant, if you can't take your cornstarch, you vomit, mm -hmm. what am I going to do with you? Are you even allowed to vomit out your cornstarch once? No, right? Mm -hmm. You don't even get one chance. No. These other disorders, okay, I'll let you vomit once at home. Let's mm -hmm. see if we can simmer you down. Let me give you a little juice. Mm -hmm. One vomit and you're done. You're in. So it's very common for these kids to have G-tubes. It's very common for them to have Zofran at home. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very, very common for them to have sugar tabs. We put a sugar tab under their tongue mm -hmm. or let them eat whatever sugar they're willing to take. Mm -hmm. Suck sugar, have a lollipop. I don't care what form of sugar to get to a hospital. These are the kids who will come in with a glucose of 12 after one episode of vomiting. These are, these are the kids where the letter says, please let them to the front of the line and don't. And the families tell me there's a line and I call them back and say, go get them out of line. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. These um, kids do great though. They actually can usually tell when they're sick. They can oh, often wow. tell you when their glucoses are low. Uh -huh. They learn to perceive it. Uh -huh. I have a great little first grader who says, goes up to her teacher, says, I need to go to my nurse. She's going to check my glucose level. And she goes Aww. over there and she checks it. Aww. And then her mom gets text and they give her some candy and she goes back to class. And then they call us and we adjust her formula the next day and figure out, okay, you need a little more of this or a little less of this. So if you think about it, yeah. because she has a glycogen storage disease, she can't break down glycogen. Mm -hmm. So I don't want her making glycogen because her liver is full of glycogen. So they're on a very high protein, higher fat diet, almost no free sugar. Mm -hmm. The only sugar this kid knows is if her glucoses are low. She views sugar as medicine. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. Because that's medicine that's for her. Medicine, yeah. So like her lunch is, it's hilarious. Her favorite food is chicken legs. <laughs> so she brings chicken legs, brown rice, and vegetables in her lunch and is so excited that she gets to have a whole chicken leg and not have to share it. Oh gosh. It's actually really cute, That's right? Really cute. That's adorable. So she's kind of amazing. Yeah. But they live life, right? Yeah. And now on glycosate, she gets to sleep six hours a night. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's game changer. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe we yeah. can talk a little bit about... Yeah, GSD-0 and now we can go into yeah. so risk of arrhythmias, particularly long QT mm -hmm. syndrome. Can, mm -hmm. we, can we talk about the pathophys behind that? So, or, yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah. We don't, we so really, in GSD-0, yeah. usually they're diagnosed later in life, to okay. be honest. Uh -huh. It is much rarer than GSD-1, mm -hmm. GSD-0. Um, and like you said, we usually find them because of long QT. Long QT. Okay, so that's actually the differential long QT you, you, you kind of, first thing you see, yeah. and then you work backwards yeah. to find the GSD. And when you yeah. see late in life, how late are we talking? Oh, sorry. Late to me is like school age. School age. Okay. So it's something that we potentially could definitely yeah, see. Yeah. yeah. It should be on your differential Children for a kid who like yeah. faints or, and you know, yeah. that kid who's acting a little wonky, you get an EKG and they have a long QT. Yeah. This would be something on your differential on your for a long job. QT. Which is not, it is mm -hmm. always. So that's good. That's, that's and good. It, yeah, exactly. Well, but you're getting an EKG, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so then you would know you had a long QT. And then, to be honest, you're going to look in the book of causes for long QT. That's true. That's true. Just let's be honest with each other. You're going to look it up. Yeah. That's yeah. true. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, any medications we need to avoid in general in these patients? So, uh, you know, the one medication I always worry about is um, sweet 
things. So yeah, medication suspension So you just want to double check that you have sure. non sugar and, and remember it's not just sugar, it's all the fake sugars. Yeah. Because some of those can be converted to glucose moieties. Uh-huh. So you, you really want to keep flavors out as much as you can. And remember these kids don't like sweet things. Sure. So they're not expecting it to taste sweet. Right. Putting that crushing that tablet onto your chicken. Yeah, exactly. Or, suspensions. or they're like crushing it into yeah. some ranch dressing. That's what go. I hear. Yeah. <laughs> ranch dressing. I mean, ketchup is kind of like too sweet for them. Yeah. So oh, it's usually wow. ranch dressing is yeah. what I hear. Or or um, Italian dressing. Oh. I've heard that too. They're all about the zesty. Yeah. <laughs> um, fevers, yeah, yeah. metabolic crisis, just like Same. anyone else. Really, it's about can they eat? Mm-hmm. And is their glucose level going down because you're using energy too fast? Mm-hmm. So then you have to get... If they're not eating, if they're using more energy demand, they don't have the glycogen stores. Mm -hmm. In glycogen storage diseases, you can't break glycogen down into energy, and this leads to early hypoglycemic events during periods of fasting. You treat glycogen storage diseases with small amounts of cornstarch that'll give you about three hours of sustained carbohydrate breakdown, or small amounts of a long-acting prescription cornstarch called glycosade, That should give you about 10 hours of sustained carbohydrate breakdown. In general, glycogen storage disease patients are also going to be on a high-protein, high-fat diet. If you give too much carbohydrate at once, they'll turn it into glycogen and might overload their liver. Let's run through the different types quickly. Glycogen storage disease type 0 is a glycogen storage disease that's diagnosed later in life, often with an incidental prolonged QT syndrome. Glycogen storage disease type 1A is the most common glycogen storage disease, and type 1B is a little bit less common, but it also presents with neutropenia. Now, glycogen storage disease 2 is actually Pompe disease. You can think about this like a lysosomal storage disease because it's a deficiency in the ability to break down glycogen in the lysosome specifically. You should also remember that Pompe disease affects the heart and that it does have an enzyme replacement therapy, so it's treatable and you should never miss it. About one-third of states in the U.S. have it on their newborn screen, including D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. We hope that everyone will be screening for it soon. Same question for you. Yeah. It's either one thing you learned recently that you can't get out of your head or your favorite oh. thing about being a pediatric geneticist. I'm trying to think of something I can't <laughs> no, get I out know. of well, my that's, head. Because if you're interviewing trainees and specialists, one of these questions bodes really well for the trainees. One of these questions bodes really well for the specialists, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so to be honest... I didn't know this before I presented the kid. Do you know? You probably know now. The highest citrulline is in watermelon. And number two, cucumber. Yeah, it's cucumber. I didn't know that. Because this kid's favorite food was cucumber. And a three-year-old, I diagnosed with OTC. I'm like, wow, that's weird. So I looked it up. And it was the number two thing on the list of most common things with high citrulline. So as soon as we started giving him citrulline, guess what? He doesn't like cucumber anymore. He's like, I don't like vegetables. And his mom's like, you ate a cucumber, like a long English cucumber every day, your whole life. And now you hate cucumber. So you can't make these things up. That's awesome. So I always love what I I learn the most from my patients. Yeah. Every time. And mom's favorite food is watermelon. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot make these stories up. Well, that was amazing. But it was also a lot. Yes. Let's do one more pass through the information. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Okay. Starting with urea cycle disorders. In urea cycle disorders, you can't turn ammonia into urea. Without the natural ability to turn ammonia into urea, the body will 
sink the ammonia into glutamine, and so you'll see elevated glutamine levels in the blood plasma amino acids and on the MR spectroscopy. Gotcha. And then next we're going to go into OTC. So ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency is the most common step in the pathway uh, that can be blocked. Because OTC is one of the enzymes required to make citrulline, you can expect low citrulline levels and might treat it with citrulline. On presentation, it's important to draw a free-flowing ammonia level sent to the lab on ice and call genetics stat. Yes. The four urea cycle disorders that we focused on are OTC, cps one citrullinemia, and arginase deficiency. CPS1 deficiency and citrullinemia are urea cycle disorders similar to OTC, and arginase deficiency is a less severe urea cycle disorder that will often present later in life. Next, we're going to transition to disorders of carbohydrate metabolism. So galactosemia was the first one we talked about. And this happens when you accumulate galactose 1-phosphate and you have a depletion of your intracellular phosphate. These patients are at a risk of presenting an acute liver failure. They're also at risk for E. coli sepsis meningitis. You treat this with a soy-based formula and low-galactose diet for life. I love the E. coli sepsis and E. coli meningitis fact. Mm -hmm. I think remembering that kids with galactosemia are at risk for that is just such an interesting and sticky fact. Mm -hmm. And also, for whatever it's worth, I've definitely seen more than one test question on this, that specific fact. Oh, (laughs) I yield for the boards as well. (laughs) In our disorders of carbohydrate metabolism, we also have glycogen storage diseases. These patients are at risk for early hypoglycemic events because they cannot break down glycogen when fasting. You treat them with cornstarch or the longer-acting glycosate, and they interestingly might also have a special diet with limited carbohydrates, so they don't build up too much glycogen and get sort of an overload in that area. Glycogen storage disease 1A is the most common, and glycogen storage disease type 2 is Pompeii disease. In Pompeii disease, the glycogen is actually building up in the lysosome, and so we also have it categorized under a lysosomal storage disease. More on that later. Spoilers. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. You can find Peds Admit on Insta if you want to see the pathways that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Maybe take a second pass at these metabolic episodes. <laughs> really cement things in there. I know I'm going to be having to listen to these a couple of times for sure. But it's all, it's all high-yield content. It's very, very helpful. You can also email us at pizzaadmin at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, etc. Or find mm-hmm. us at pizzaadmin.com. Thanks for listening.